0: That was very nice. Well, hello and welcome to the unofficial Unreal Engine podcast, where we talk about all things Unreal Engine and also experiences ruined by Kevin. We're your hosts. My name's Alex, and next to me is... Hey, is Jacob. Uh, w- welcome back, folks. Uh, and uh, before
1: we do anything, make sure you like, rate, comment, subscribe, everything, everywhere, wherever you are. All at once. Thank you for listening, watching, whatever. We, we, we really appreciate it. And uh, we're back again. After Apple Vision Pro release, I don't know what we're going to talk about anymore, Alex. I mean, really, the you know the thrill is gone. <laughs> but uh, actually, we're kind of rolling into an inter- interesting time of the year. We got uh, as we've been uh, uh, teasing, you know, we got GDC coming up. Maybe some new Unreal Engine features.
0: We got a lot to look forward to. But uh, what do you want? What do you want to talk about tonight, Alex? Ooh, well, for the agenda tonight, um, I thought maybe we just start doing like a brief little Apple Vision Pro check-in uh, just to mention a little bit about how I'm using the device and uh, where the progress is on getting Unreal Engine to work on it. I thought we could talk a little bit about the investment that Disney has made into the Epic Games uh, metaverse, Fortnite and all that. I thought we could talk a little bit about Fortnite because I've actually been playing it a little bit more the past couple of weeks. weeks. Um, there's also this amazing new a thing called Sora from OpenAI, which is uh, text-to-video. And there's a lot of interesting speculation that Unreal Engine might be a big part of the training data, and it would be fun to talk a little bit about that. And then I thought we could do a quick little like you know code thing for Unreal Engine. Uh, We've had more people in the comments, thank you for the comments, saying, hey, guys, we really love it when you give us some tips in Unreal Engine, so maybe we could do that. And then similarly, we've got a couple shout-outs just to some cool Unreal Engine creators out there and want to acknowledge their awesomeness. How's that sound, It sounds pretty good to me. I I mean, uh I'll talk
1: about anything. <laughs> You're very easy. Yeah. Our listeners would know. Yeah. Uh I, I say let's get right into it. I I mean the the Disney epic news, I think, top of mind. Pretty interesting. And uh just for the the listeners out there, uh, right before we started the the episode, I, I told Alex that I swore we had talked about this <laughs> on air already. So I apologize in advance if I uh, if I did bring anything uh, up and, and you're having to listen to it again. But what I will say is that I think this is, is a pretty exciting announcement. And I think there's a
0: lot to read into here. Literally, there's a lot to read. Yeah. Um, some of the highlights, it's a $1.5 billion equity stake uh, in a multi-year project. You know, it hasn't been approved yet. There's gonna be, of course, you know, a regulatory um process to all of this. And my understanding is that um this will mostly come out of Tim Sweeney's uh equity stake in uh Epic Games. I'm curious what that will mean in terms of, you know, leading the company moving forward. What do you think, Jacob? Well, yeah, th- that is the question is where where the equity is coming from for this. So
1: I I um I would speculate. That you know, there's a few big reasons why Epic would do this um, at, at this point in time. Um, one, you know, tech outside of very niche sectors overall has you know been experiencing a ton of layoffs. Uh, there's a you know kind of a, uh, you know there are pressures in the market to you know improve profits and and all sorts of stuff like that. And we know Epic, you know, last year in October laid off. Um, I want to say, what was it, ten to fifteen percent, something like that. Yeah, like nine hundred yeah. people. Yeah, and and so this comes at a time where they're, you know, clearly trying to rejuvenate their, you know, it, the excitement people have for Epic Games in the market. Um, you know, they had a very successful season with Fortnite. Um, they've obviously had a very long and successful relationship with Disney. Um, and this seems to come just at a perfect time as a company for them to allow an investor to come in and take a big stake in what they're doing. Um, and for Disney, this is a great deal because you're, you're probably getting a a pretty huge discount on, uh, this equity given the kind of dip in metaverse hype. Um, and also, you know instantaneously snatching up um you know a huge new you know a, a new sector for growth um you know for your your games industry so you know Disney has been doing things with e a and um e a in particular with games mm-hmm. they've obviously done a lot of i p sharing with fortnite, but this is huge stuff for them. And for Epic, um, yeah, it comes at a time where they need investment probably to continue to, to scale their business. Um, that we know that they've been tight on money, but a fifteen, a one point five billion dollar stake in a privately owned company is significant. Yeah, and, and where that, where that equity is coming from is a huge question. I would guess that another reason Epic would do this now is to actually allow all of the employees um, that they laid off that they allowed early vesting for um, to sell mm. oh that's interesting so you know if if you were just laid off from epic um, they did this thing called early vesting so if you have options in in a company like epic um, I, The longer you work there, the more options you have permanently. So even if you get fired or you leave or something like that, you have the option to buy a share of Epic Games stock with, it's usually within a year is what you get. So like you have a year to, to go ahead and and buy that share and then it's yours it's permanent, um, but otherwise, you know, use it or lose it kind of thing. Uh, so then, uh, when when these people got laid off from Epic back in October, they were given early investing, meaning it didn't matter how long they worked there. They said, okay, all of the options that we granted you, they're just vested. We're not worrying about it. Uh, you'll have an option to exercise or, or buy those shares if you'd like. Uh, the problem with that usually is that it's very expensive and the tax burden is huge unless you actually have an exit like an IPO or or a major investment like this. So it seems to me that Another big incentive for Epic to make this deal now is to allow those employees that they just laid off uh, to sell their shares, which is a very nice thing to do, uh, as well as probably a ton of their longer term employees who, you know, maybe it's now just been clear that they're not going to go towards an IPO, or maybe it'll take another few years or something like that. Um, So that that seems like a, a, a huge incentive for them.
0: For sure. Um, something kind of interesting, too. So, our last episode, we were talking about uh, the Disney Plus app on Apple Vision Pro and about uh, an old discontinued VR experience that Disney had started to build, where they kind of had these different islands of like Marvel and Star Wars and traditional Disney. And I was saying how, you know, it was kind of sad that they discontinued that. And for our video watchers, I have an image behind me from the press release that is kind of this concept art of how, you know, Fortnite might start to bring these kinds of like Disney islands into the world. Uh, this might be totally like an illustrative sort of thing, but it's funny how this does remind me a lot of uh, that VR experience that was very much trying to remind you of all the different IP owned by Disney and how it might start to connect together, almost in like a Wreck-It Ralph kind of way. Uh, like these are all in, in the same world. Um, so it's I, I'm very curious how this is all going to tie together, not just in Fortnite, but also, you know, in virtual production tools. And, uh, you know, if this might deepen the relationship that Disney has with, yeah. Movies and, and other IP moving forward across a lot of different mediums. Yeah, uh, what this actually looks like, I think, is a huge question,
1: um, and I, I get the feeling not even Disney knows. Yeah. Uh, oh, you well, know, maybe Epic has an idea, but I, I tend to believe this is like this is very much an opportune moment, um, and more than it is a specific idea or execution. Mm-hmm. Where. They saw the opportunity to make this deal. Disney knows they want to move more into games. Epic Games is a consistent front runner. They have, you know, ton of talent, uh, and Fortnite continues to be, you know, a big, um, you know, a, a huge driving force behind, um, you know, some of their IP. So I, I think it makes a ton of sense.
0: Do you think Epic gives data to? The owners of various IP that come into Fortnite? Like, do you think Disney already has statistics on, like, when they have put, you know, Stormtroopers and Star Wars and Iron Man and all these different characters into Fortnite, like, how that's affected, you know, brand perception or whatever kind of metrics might be useful? I'm sure if you're Epic, you you are 100% doing that because
1: (laughs) there, well, I, I guess there's two ways to look at it. So there are probably some cases where Epic pays to include intellectual property Mm -hmm. in Fortnite. So, you know, they'll make a deal like, let us build a game mode around, you know, Star Wars. Uh, right? But probably the vast majority of the times, it's brands who are paying Epic Games to include, you know, their IP.
0: Especially for a marketing uh, push, exactly, ahead of a movie or something like that. And
1: if you're going to put a price on that, which Epic Games would, yeah, you you got to come with some numbers of, hey, we drove this many engagements and it led to, or, you know, I'm sure they give them a, a cut of every like skin they sell. I mm-hmm. mean, like, hey, you could be making X number of dollars off of people just buying Fortnite skins. And you could think of it as an extension of your existing merchandise, which is where Disney makes most of their money anyways. Yeah. So... Yeah. I I think that's, I I think I'm I'm sure that they, they have those numbers. Um, yeah. How, how this kind of gets extended and at, you know, what this means for the intellectual property that that's already been included there. I, I don't know. I, I, I just, I don't know what this looks like. Yeah. Whether this, they're imagining this as like a parks like experience, or they're imagining this as the cinematic universe games you know like whatever's next there uh, yeah i i don't know
0: yeah like the simplest implementation is just more disney characters all the time inside Fortnite, and then there's a lot of expansions of that like a more specific offshoot of Fortnite that is specific to disney kind of the way we have the lego uh version of that right now maybe we also start to see more of the lego uh you know Disney IP together, like Star Wars and, and Marvel, and all that, which would be kind of interesting, since the Lego theme parks actually are not able to use all of those um, connected IPs. So more brand partnerships here start to mean we we could see a lot of interesting uh, new content crop up that you don't usually see.
1: Yeah, I, I I would I would bet that it's it's stuff like the the Lego um, survival games and stuff like that. Cause that, that just makes a ton of sense to, to be, especially for an investment of this size. I think the expectation would be that they would build new game types with the IP and not just include it in the, in the way they already have. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think this is an exciting deal. I think hopefully this gives Epic some legs to, you know, continue to, to do what they're doing, um, and not feel this, the pressure to uh you know, sell out, <laughs> which is great. um, obviously we'll take that. But um yeah, I think this is awesome. Uh actually I, I have a question for you. I yeah? saw on Twitter you were posting about the uh licensing for mm-hmm. a real engine. What what can you say?
0: <laughs> um, all I am allowed to say, and I got a little more clarification from Edis, is that there are ongoing conversations with Um, yeah, partners with Epic Games on what the pricing is going to look like. Obviously, the cost for that there will be a cost for Unreal Engine is no secret. You know, Tim Sweeney announced that very publicly at Unreal Fest back in October. Um, But what I was expressing over Twitter was first and foremost an appreciation that there isn't just going to be this big press release that says, hey, by the way, here's how everything's going to work with Epic Games and and pricing for Unreal Engine and, and motion and all that. It's discussions. So, you know, I was emailed by uh, some representatives from Epic Games who had no idea what my affiliation was as an, an instructor and course creator and that kind of person. They just knew that my company was like a licensed partner using UDN and that kind of stuff. And um, they just wanted to have a chat. Like they said, they I can't repeat exactly what they told me, but they basically said, here's some ideas we have for how the pricing might work. Um, here's you know what some of those numbers might look like. Here's what the terms might be. What do you think? So I really appreciated that it was It was positioned as like, we want your feedback and we're not trying to extort you for money right now. And so, you know, presumably sometime in the near future, there will be some decisions made on that front, but they'll be able to say that this was done with the input from a lot of the studios they've talked to, um, not just the way Unity did it, which was like from on high, blah, we want all your money now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not not surprised they're they're taking a, a much better approach to this. Um, and and yeah, I mean, uh, all the way back in Unreal Fest, uh, it it was telling the way the audience reacted to it, which was not, no one was that frightened because everyone was just like, yeah, we figured this would happen eventually. We're just happy that you told us in person, you know, (laughs) like, uh, and explained it, like explained the reasons. So anyways, I, I think all that factors into this, uh, this kind of decision to, to sell a huge chunk of the company I, I don't know what the latest valuation was but it had to be somewhere what like between 30 50 billion like yeah, this is a significant you know equity stake
0: yeah it does make me wonder if there's going to be any tension or if uh they're pretty much united on what they think the future of, of Fortnite and epic games and unreal engine and all that looks like it it will be fascinating as we start to get more cooks in the kitchen to see if there's any public disagreements about. You know the way Disney characters start to get used in, in Fortnite or whatever the case may be. In theory,
1: um, you know, Epic could do a, a, a press release for the valuation based on this equity deal. I'm sure we won't get it, but um, yeah, yeah, I I think this is uh, I I mean the the good thing is that at a at a thirty billion valuation, a one point five billion dollar stake. Doesn't give them any controlling stake now. If you're Disney in this situation, you're probably still asking for a board seat mm-hmm. or something like that for sure. um But so you know what kind of influence they can have, I I don't know. um Disney has you know a long history of being good at uh, getting what they want. um But yeah, I I think it's too early to. We'll just have to see what this looks like. I, I'm excited.
0: Yeah. I did hear some speculation that this might be the early signs of a potential IPO or something like that. Does that ring true for you? Uh, IPO for Epic.
1: Yeah. No, I I would say it's the opposite, honestly. Um, So, like, you know, if you're Epic and you're headed towards an IPO, you wouldn't be looking for an investor like Disney, who is like a strategic investor, right? And working for like a bank or Mm -hmm. an. Someone who's gonna essentially bankroll your IPO. Um, I can't remember the the term for it. Eludes uh, me. But um, um, essentially, when, when you IPO, you you have to get a hand, a handful of stakeholders who are gonna essentially put up the cash to acquire. It's usually like ten to fifteen percent of the new shares you're gonna mint when you IPO, and that's essentially to float the price into the market so that. Everything doesn't get just uh, tanked, essentially, when you set a price. Um, and so to do that, you would have a, a big bank or you know, the JP Morgans and Morgan Stanleys of the world investing in you. Disney is strategic, is a strategic investor. that makes sense? This is clearly based on the ecosystem, based off some actual thing they want to do. Um, and so it, it doesn't strike like this is an, an IPO, IPO move. And it. it strikes me as someone trying to actively uh, avoid honesty. honestly.
0: Gotcha. Cool. All right. Well, the next thing I want to talk about briefly is uh, Fortnite as an actual game. Uh, our past listeners might know that Jacob is a, a very big fan of Fortnite, and we somehow do a bit of a Fortnite corner with him. And I'm a little more of a reluctant Fortnite player. It's never been something that I've spent a ton of time with. The last time I spent a lot of hours on Fortnite was with Attack on Titan, because uh, that's an IP I really like. And so I went through all the missions to get all the, the skins and, you know, Graffiti sprays and whatever, and characters, and enjoyed that. And then I haven't been on it much, but right now there's two properties in Fortnite that I have some kind of nostalgic attachment to uh, Metal Gear Solid with Snake and Raiden, as well as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I've been spending a lot more time in Fortnite trying to complete all the missions there. And I'm falling a little bit more into uh, the game loop. And I think it's, it feels like less of a chore and more like, oh, I'm actually really kind of hooked in to this game loop. And trying out different strategies and, uh, you know, getting gold and buying things with gold and and trying out different characters and different moves and trying to explore the whole map. And I just find that I'm a little more excited to go out about all these things than the last time I did this, which was, you know, a season or two back. So my question for you, Jacob, is why might I be enjoying it more now? Do you think this is just a, a natural progression or have there actually been some changes that I might not be aware of that are further enhancing my, my time here? That's a good question. I I mean, I I do think
1: that the latest season or kind of the big overhauls they made after the, you know, kind of rewind uh, Fortnite over the holidays made it a lot, uh, in some ways, a lot more fast paced than Mm it used to be, Um, in my opinion, at least. Um, They're a lot more items for you to find uh, a lot more ways that your character can progress through the match so you know the the uh, shield tokens and the vaults and it, it seems like honestly there's just a lot more to do right um, within the, the world even though it is still somewhat uh, a rep- repetitive process it's less of you know okay oh, like between games, the difference isn't as much. Here's where I'm going to like, mm. what happens then? Um, so I think there's there's some interesting stuff there, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I I'm not sure. I got asked though, Alex. Like, are are you good at building yet? Um, ha, have you gotten like all the
0: crazy key, you know, uh, uh, key key uh, combinations down? Uh, no, I, I don't have them down, but I am using them more. And something that very well may have, may have existed the last time I was playing Fortnite, but I'm only noticing it now. Is you know the beginning of every uh, battle royale session, you're kind of given an option of three missions to t- like try to complete one of those um, during battle royale. Yeah, has that been there forever?
1: No, that's that's new. That's new in the season as well.
0: Yeah, so that's been good for me. Like it's it's kind of forced me to be like oh, build 25, you know, metal structures? Oh, I wonder if I can do that. And so that it does kind of nudge me to try out some of this stuff or, you know, to visit a particular location or to um, use a weapon in a particular way. I've never used it before. Uh, so that's been cool in combination with the, like, skin-specific missions and that sort of thing. Um, I am getting a little better at building, at least for the sake of, like, creating a, a shield for myself. And, oh, here's a fun thing. I managed to win a Fortnite match without killing anyone at all <laughs> nice so i think what happened or must have happened was the the final two players beside me they must have killed each other right
1: air er- one like got in the storm or who knows that's okay. funny that's pretty funny yeah yeah i i, I gotta say the building is the uh, the trickiest part uh, in my opinion and i think if you watch the like really good players they're all using controller is Unless you're really good at like uh, on PC hitting all your number keys and stuff like that, trying to build you know one thing at a time is I find uh, almost impossible at the at the rate that you see like uh, really good players doing. I I, I don't know. I, I there, there's some crazy Fortnite players out there. That's for sure.
0: So to be clear, though, you're saying you can be faster on a like an Xbox controller compared to a keyboard. Oh, way, way faster. Because on Xbox,
1: um, man, someone who's a really good Fortnite player is going to absolutely roast me for, for sure. <laughs> Um On an Xbox controller, you're, I want to say it's like your deep ad um, just automatically builds a structure. So you don't have to like click into the menu, hit, you know, point it where you want it and then press. Essentially, it will just automatically build. And so you can just do like, essentially in, in a loop on the D pad and it will build a structure around you. Um, you can do the same thing on a keyboard. If you switch it into the right mode, then I want to say there's like keys. There's something crazy going on the keyboard that I'm never going to get down. Um, but yeah, if you watch the the pros play it, it, it's insane. They're just building huge forts. They're like cutting holes in walls to shoot through for like half a second. And then it, they switch it back. Like, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Wow.
0: Crazy, <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people are clearly amazing at this, and I have found myself with like full health and full shields, um running across a map, and someone gets me from you know a hundred miles away. um and I have no idea how they do it.
1: Yeah, there's there's some good Fortnite players out there, but hey, you know um, there are some other uh, fun uh, Unreal Engine games uh, around the block these days. Uh, just just before we started here, I was chatting about Power World. Yeah. I think we've spoken about Power World on the, this podcast. That was a bit of a phenomena. Are you in early access there? Y- yeah, I, I've been playing it. Uh, I, I I don't know if it has enough content for you to really like keep playing it. Uh, to be honest, like I, I played through the level progression, and I mean it's a ton of fun, and you start to unlock crazy stuff, and you're these cartoon, you know, pals have rocket launchers and it's hilarious. It's a great time. Um, it's just, there are so many, there's enough frustrating things about it and not enough, uh, like end game progression or, or just like things to do beyond just like looking around for, you know, pals that, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you could legitimately play that for too long. Right. It is a lot of fun, um, and as an Unreal Engine game, it actually showcases a few interesting things. The biggest one being Lumen, which you can notice very frequently because of the noise that creeps around uh, dark areas where they haven't, you know, like tuned the uh, uh, resolution of the <laughs> of the maps. But um, yeah, no, I mean it's a fun game
0: and there there were a lot of um i think we discussed this on the podcast a few episodes ago about how a lot of the early unreal engine 5 releases were only using software um lumen or software ray tracing and not many had actually even enabled the ability for hardware ray tracing through lumen do you think this might actually be proper ray tracing through lumen i i think so
1: um i mean the the difference between the hardware and software ray tracing it's probably subtle. Uh, uh, I, I think if you see
0: a lot of it, it's actually more likely to be hardware, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, but, no, I mean, you can tell it's using, uh, like, I, I don't think I enabled RTX or
0: anything. Um,
1: gotcha. Um, and it was very clearly using Lumen, as you could see the noise accumulating. Uh, when you would enter spaces, you would notice um, that they were disabling Certain light sources as you got further away, probably to reduce the number uh, of you know maps that are updating in real time. Um, so th- there's definitely some interesting stuff that they're doing, but it, it was clear that they're using it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know if Power World is like the best example ever of an Unreal Engine game, uh, but I mean, it's it something. Um, and it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun, I will say. Do you think Nintendo is going to sue them? I I think probably if they were going to sue them, they would have done it already. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the more likely scenario is that they just rip them off. <laughs> I mean, sure, they're going to have to tone it down a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think if I were, look, if you if you were level-headed about this at Nintendo, you say, yeah, these guys clearly ripped you off. They made they made some money, you know. They probably made, I don't know. I would guess let's say tens of millions as a company mm-hmm. on this game. If you're a Nintendo and you're looking at Pokémon, which is a franchise that has made billions and billions of dollars over its lifetime, and all of a sudden a bunch of people are excited about this idea, You'll just rip them off, and then if they try to come and sue you for ripping off their game, you say no, no. <laughs> like, you know, they don't want that, right? So yeah, if you're a Nintendo, you're you're. I don't know. I think the smart thing to do is just rip them off, make a similar game, but with the IP that people love. Um, people love you know Pokemon characters, owls. They have no you know affection for. Yeah, just make your own, um, and it's. Not that hard if you're a Nintendo to make something like this. So I that's what I would do.
0: Yeah, it's a bunch of free market research. You know, they can see what people love or don't love about this and just, you know, cherry pick the things that are most on brand for them and probably, you know, at least do what uh, Zelda has done with like Breath of the Wild and all that. Just at least have a, a proper open world Pokemon game, which they've never done. Yeah, I, I mean, everyone's like, why hasn't a
1: Nintendo ever done this? And I, I don't think there's. Um, I don't think they have a good
0: answer, to be yeah. honest. Well, well. Um, also, speaking of interesting new games made in Unreal, there's one that's been making a, a big splash today, and it is called uh, whoop, from uh, a gentleman by the name of. Oh no, did I lose it? I had it pulled up. And, uh, here we go. King King Makers King Makers game. So right before the podcast started, I saw well, like. We've six, basically. We've got you know uh, a really good looking Unreal Engine uh, real-time strategy game. We've got you know great looking trebuchets, um, particle effects, and I'm just thinking like, yeah, sure, this is a your pretty standard good looking battle simulator. Um, and then we see this. Oh, <laughs> what? Oh, oh. <laughs> oh my god! So you know it gets pretty gory, but the idea here, of course is that we have uh, someone traveling from the future back into the past and having all the modern weaponry of, yeah, vehicles and sniper rifles. Um, there's an airstrike here, you know? Um, and the the premise is something like, in order to save our future, we need to fight the past or whatever. <laughs> so I think that's a pretty brilliant premise, and I hope it's just, it's executed as well as I think this Well, if you go back to the beginning, yeah, uh, of that clip
1: there, this looks like these people are particles, <laughs> and not uh, uh, and not rigs. The way that they're they're moving around, uh, maybe not in these scenes, but like in these, this looks straight up like a Niagara particle simulator.
0: Yeah, yeah, they might all be like vertex animations or something.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> and the only reason I point that out is because I don't know that I think that's pretty cool. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so that's uh, looking pretty exciting. Um, It's going to be, it was just unveiled to the public today. They've been working on it for five years. Uh, Kingmakers on Steam. Check it out. Uh, I really look forward to following the development of this totally bonkers idea. They're kind of in the same vein as like, how World seems like this really Mm -hmm. nice update of something like Pokemon. This is kind of like, um, oh, and actually, you know what? We got to give due credit to our pal, because Ready of Light Twist, who had a similar reaction uh, that I did to this, which is like, oh, this is basically the uh, the cheat from Age of Empires where you could have a car appear and start like blowing away everyone, but turning that into the entire game. <laughs> Maybe that's the inspiration. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So thanks, Vikas. That's looking cool. Um, yeah, cool. And I've got a few other shout outs uh, that we'll get to closer to the end, but uh, let's hop over to OpenAI Sora. And I'm a little nervous about... <clears throat> Actually, showing video of Sora because a couple of friends of mine who wanted to chat about it actually got takedown notices for it. So, for those who don't know, uh, Sora is the new OpenAI text to video uh, generator, and it's insane. Like, you know, most AI video will have deformations, and there's the Will Smith eating spaghetti thing that everyone kind of uses as a benchmark. And you're very aware that, like, there's something wrong with this video. The samples they were showing for OpenAI. Sora were remarkable. Like Everything about it just felt so physically accurate. You had um, car driving up a hill. You had things underwater. You had animations that looked like they could have been done by Pixar. Um, A a woman on a train looking out and you're seeing reflections and all that. Uh, A woman walking down the street. Really, really remarkable. And there have been some very interesting discussions uh, of people who are like, you know, I don't know if this is actually trained on Real footage, as much as it might be trained on something like Unreal Engine, and people are pointing out things like uh, some of the movement of people seem very similar to some out of the box like walk cycles that you get um, in Unreal Engine. They pointed out that during one of the the driving demos, um you see a lot of smoke coming out of the back of the tires, but none out of the front of the tires, and that's a common difference between reality and video games, and I'm just showing them um, a reddit post here on uh, local llama, local llama, <laughs> where uh, someone also had like a bit of a Twitter thread explaining some of the other reasons why they think that uh, this is probably more trained on something like Unreal Engine compared to reality.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's a super interesting theory. Um, I think that uh, what probably one of the biggest challenges with a lot of the Text to video models is that they'll try to take an approach where they'll they'll train on photos or images first, and then they'll try to, you know, or they'll try to figure out creative ways of interpolating between them, essentially. Uh, and I I'm sure that's a huge simplification because there, there's plenty of ways to go about this, but. Um, Fundamentally, like uh, an AI model still has to process things one frame at a time. And so whether you do it one frame or every frame or every 10 frames and have a different way of interpolating or some other method, it's all just images to, you know, any, any model, um, because there's no like base truth of reality, which runs at infinite frames, you know, whatever. (laughs) Um, so it, it makes a lot of sense why, why you would do something like use Unreal Engine. Um, and the biggest examples strike me as things like uh, metahumans, mm-hmm. where maybe they're able to do something like take footage of metahumans and run them through existing image models and get really solid results because of how like, close they are, so to speak, to, to reality. Um, and then maybe they're able to generate a ton of, then, you know, tons and tons of examples of humans in different, um, scenarios and different locations and places. And I can imagine that being, you know, hugely, um, influential to a data set. Uh, so I, I get, mm-hmm. I get it from that point of view. Um, uh, people, I, I noticed people were also pointing out a lot of the physics stuff, um, like how it's able to like, uh, properly, uh, interpolate things like the snow for the puppies and like, uh, water and stuff like that. Um, I'm not sure I would be convinced that that's like a, uh, a side effect of something like Unreal Engine, which is not particularly good at those kinds of things, Mm. historically at least. Um, but yeah, I mean, the results here are incredible. I, I think that's
0: hard to argue against. Yeah yeah, and no one I no, don't think anyone's claiming that, like all of Sora is based on Unreal Engine, but just the ability to take that into account as part of its training data set just means that there's a lot more things that can be simulated and imagined um compared to only using whatever you know, stock photography or or movie footage that they're able to use. I have no idea what the training data set is, but not using copyrighted material uh, would be very helpful Now that also begs the question of if Unreal Engine were a big part of this, like, Does OpenAI owe Epic Games? And I don't know. You know, these are interesting questions that we might learn more about in the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's been unclear, right? What I did see is that Tim Sweeney was commenting on Sora and a few cases where he either was pretending to be ignorant or (laughs) was honestly surprised. Um, And Tim Sweeney is not a particularly... Uh, Well, he he isn't prone to lying uh, typically, um, at least from what we've seen uh, from him. So I would find it hard to believe that, you know, if if he's kind of reacting to this in real time like we are, that he knew it was being used. I also think if you're open AI and you're building a data set, you don't want anyone knowing that you're using this as training data because then all your competition is going to come in and try to do the same thing. Um, So a lot of this stuff is really closely held so it wouldn't surprise me if Tim Sweeney didn't. Even, it was being because it's it's in the margins. It could have been a single, you know, like a, a dozen instances of Unreal Engine just chugging through, you know, uh, simulations and and generating images. To so, it probably wasn't substantial enough to to be on that rate.
0: Yeah, and something cool that some folks have been doing is uh, some of the camera moves out of Sora, which, by the way, can be up to a minute long. That's like a really nice level of um, consistency that we haven't seen before in text-to-video. Some people were like, oh, hey, I can put this through, you know, Luma AI and start to generate nerfs and um, and Gaussian splats. And so, of course, Luma, for example, has an excellent Unreal Engine plugin. So I've already seen some people, you know, take this totally invented video, -video, text-to-video, generate a a radiance field. This is from radiancefields.com uh clearly, you know, something out of Greece, and then putting that into Unreal Engine and then viewing it in VR. Like what a crazy time to be alive where this content can be generated from a few words and now suddenly you can feel like you're in it at scale, experiencing it. Yeah. I mean the it's the future, man. Yeah. The future.
1: Yeah. Uh, now I I I do think it's it's worth talking about. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I was in a, a bit of a weird place when this came out. Uh, personally, because, uh, on my Twitter, I get two sides of this, which is one is all the AI folks, because, you know, work day to day, I work with a lot of AI companies. Um, so I got all like the AI people freaking out saying, this is the biggest thing ever game changing that I had the other half of my Twitter feed, which is all, you know, creatives and artists Mm -hmm. and Unreal Engine, you know, people and. And folks in VFX and stuff mm-hmm. like that, who were essentially having mm-hmm. the exact opposite reaction. Sure, this is destructive, and this is going to be conflated in so many ways. And yeah, I I, I don't know. I think it's I think the dialogue in this is obviously very new, um, yeah. but I, I fundamentally. Yeah, I I don't know how this is going to shake out. I don't think anyone does, but um, I think you look at this and you'd be like, wow, that, you know, something like this would be, would have been actually just impossible 10 years ago. I forget not having enough computers or time or,
0: you know, cameras, even.
1: It just would have been impossible.
0: Uh, Yeah. So there's definitely a case to be made that it's all theft and that the lack of regulation on this is kind of a nightmare because, yeah, if I was uh, an Unreal Engine artist, who had created, you know, a short film that took me three years. And I could clearly tell in something generated by Sora that it had been trained on my short film. And I know that I'm getting no compensation from that. And I'm suddenly losing jobs and having less work because people are like, I'm not gonna hire you. I'll just do it with Sora. Like, that's awful. That's terrible. And it's it, on the one hand, it's like, this is incredible. What, a, what an amazing innovation this is going to allow more people to create content that they never otherwise would have been able to. So in some ways, it's democratizing CG and creativity the same way, you know, ChatGPT has been doing that in a lot of ways. But the fact that we still don't have any clear way to compensate anyone who uh, has contributed to the training data is is a huge issue that is mostly still going ignored.
1: Yep, yep, I totally agree. Um, I think there's... Yeah. There's so much gray area here. Um, and I I think it it goes beyond compensation. You know, it's, it's just like people's livelihoods are at stake here uh, with a lot of this stuff. Um, and that's always been the case with technology. Like that's just kind of what it does, um, typically, but certainly the, the pace at which we're accelerating and the the places where we're kind of pushing today are, are totally new and scary. Where these are the kinds of things people said, you know, computers would never be able to do. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's that's what's most kind of frightening about about this kind of situation. Even though it's still incredibly fascinating and exciting, and and the the you know potential for people to be able to create new things, I think is is enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, well. I don't know what's going to happen, but I, this was super exciting. And I, I think, yeah, the, the likelihood that, you know, Unreal Engine played a part in it is probably big, and, and there's probably a whole lot of people who also weren't compensated. So, yeah, it's, it's complicated.
0: It can be exciting and horrifying at the same time. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Um, I, and just to give a, an example of some of the reactions I've seen, uh, Corey Williams, who's been, uh, you know, making YouTube videos since the dawn of YouTube, but also over the past couple of years has been making a lot of really cool stuff in Unreal Engine. He leaned into it in a big way. Uh, he saw all the stuff with Sora and was like, it, it kind of make, made him want to give up on a lot of the the efforts he's been pursuing in Unreal Engine with short films and digital humans. He had just made like a new iClone character of himself and was starting to experiment with that. And he's like, I don't know, with Sora now, like that doesn't seem like a livelihood worth pursuing. So now he's like, I'm going to go back to focusing on making kid videos. He's got uh, a YouTube channel on YouTube for YouTube kids called um, Just for Kids. And he's like, you know, I'm already getting like 20 million views a month on that. And it was something that I was doing as kind of a side project. And he's like, that feels like the most meaningful place I can put my time right now, rather than these much more complex pursuits of, uh, of digital humans and pushing the limits of Unreal Engine. So, you know, he's basically saying, like, I want to focus on like really straightforward storytelling for this very particular audience. And that's something that, at least for the time being, we don't see—you know—AI uh, taking away from us is the ability to tell uh, a really good human story with a human touch.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that's that's a, a, a telling story. Uh, I think it's also the kind of thing where um, I, I've I've always said that like uh, you you really can't go into it with a what AI can and can't. You can't make a, any sort of judgment on that. Um, as you don't know, really, I will be able to do. Um, and as far as we can tell at this moment in time, it can do just about anything a human can get, Uh which is definitely scary and definitely frightening and poses all sorts of existential questions. We're just not ready for it, right? right. Um, but in the meantime, people should continue to... You know, build their lives around the things they're passionate about mm-hmm. and continue to create things and should continue to develop their own knowledge and understanding of things. Like you, you can't sacrifice that for, for anything. Yeah.
0: All right. Moving on, a uh, quick little Apple Vision Pro update. Uh, here's a little video I made on February 11th, just showing an update to uh, how I'm doing getting things from Apple Vision Pro or, sorry, from. Xcode into Apple Vision Pro from Unreal, and this was the first application that I managed to actually get running on Apple Vision Pro. This is, of course, just a mirror of my MacBook. I'll skip past me talking. And uh, what we'll see pop up in a second is an app that uh, did not build correctly using 5.4, but then here we have 5.5 coming from the UE5 main channel in GitHub, and this one actually opens. So once I open the 5.5 one, ta-da! That's actually a Swift UI built in Unreal. And the thing that's missing is when you enter it and go into it, it doesn't give you the full Unreal Engine environment that you see in the simulator. But it is technically, you know, where it says Swift UI and Unreal uh, with a button, that was all generated from Unreal. So it's like steps in the right direction. And I think we're getting closer and closer to proper uh, immersive content that lives inside of Apple Vision Pro that comes from Unreal. And that will unlock a lot of possibilities. And allow a lot of people who don't like paying Unity's fees to hop over to the hopefully much more affordable uh, version here in real.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool to see. Yeah. How is like how have things gone since that first app? Have you made any more progress?
0: No, no. This is February 11th, and that was the last big update. I haven't uh, gotten past that yet. I am keeping an eye on the the um, the updates in the GitHub just to see if anything is um, exciting and new. Um, You know, you can literally just search like Apple Vision Pro or Vision OS in the GitHub and try to find um, changelogs that way. Um, But I'll mention briefly from a usability perspective, I am putting on this headset every day. I am using it for productivity. I have screens all around me. I have my MacBook Pro in front of me. I have uh, Twitter and Slack, um, a little battery monitor. I've got some volumetric content popping around me and I'm spending more time in that virtual work environment. Than where I am right now, which is my my home office, where I typically would want to be using my two large ultra wide screens and my uh, my flat screen TV that I kind of use as a giant monitor up above me, because it's so easy to arrange that and so much more all around me on my couch or from my bed uh, up on the ceiling if I want to and to actually be productive that way. So it is kind of a revelation for my general productivity. And um I wouldn't recommend doing it a lot in public. Like anytime I try to do this at a cafe, there's still kind of a social pariah quality to it. But just in terms of being around the house or being in an unfamiliar work environment and getting things done, including in Unreal Engine for totally unrelated projects, um, it's quite nice. In fact, the ability to look at uh, renders from Unreal or like, you know, blow up a screen to be enormous and see uh, everything operating at a larger resolution than what I could typically. See on my regular monitors, that's really cool. So if we're doing like a an output of a cinematic or something like that, I, I'm able to catch a lot more details in what is or isn't working. Interesting. Yeah, I, I mean that that makes sense to me. So have you been like?
1: I, I guess you always use it with your laptop, right? It Pretty much. Don't ever bring it with just a keyboard or something like that.
0: Yeah, I just use the laptop uh, because that provides the touchpad and the keyboard, which uh, operates with this all really well. Yeah, makes sense. But I mean, I'm surprised to hear that you you are you're using it every day. I mean, that that seems like a step in the
1: right direction.
0: I'm surprised too. I did not think it was going to be uh, my my main headset, and I haven't spent a lot of time um, in my MetaQuest Pro, uh, which I wasn't using much for productivity anyway. It was what I expected to be for productivity because they were kind of going in that direction with the Pro branding. Um, now, on the bright side, you know, Zuck came out and had like a little response about the things he doesn't like about the Apple Vision Pro. And he wasn't wrong about a lot of that stuff, but he was really um, minimizing the things that Apple Vision Pro does so much better than the MetaQuest Pro, like really solid spatial anchors for keeping content exactly where you want it and just making it very easy to customize a workspace and go from not having the headset on to being in a very productive work environment with very little friction. Um, So I think a lot of the these nice little usability features that Apple has pioneered is going; they're going to be adopted now by Meta. So it's going to be a very healthy bit of competition, a bit of a space race that I'm. I think is just going to be beneficial for all the consumers out there. So looking forward to seeing more of that going
1: on. Yeah, I was going to ask you what what you thought about Zuck's uh, monologue, and to me, it just. I the the response that I saw on the internet pretty. kind of all over the place was he's not wrong but he's also not like so spot on that he had to get on you know on the internet and tell everyone about it because it 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 comes across just enough as desperate yeah agreed that it it looked the optics weren't great even if again most of what he was saying was was correct i i i think yeah i mean probably should have been involved but uh yeah,
0: I was a little petty, a little insecure.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I haven't tried MetaQuest 3. I, I would love to try one as well and give it a fair shake. I think yeah. probably a lot of people, consumers are considering that,
0: to be honest. Uh, hey, I can't afford an Apple Vision Pro, but... Everyone is overselling the quality of their pass-through. You know, Apple's pass-through is no doubt better than what the MetaQuest 3 has. But neither of them are that good enough yet that either of them should be bragging about it. You know, Zuck was like, "Hey, we filmed this whole thing using the pass through, which isn't actually giving anyone a clear experience of what it's actually like to be surrounded by that, where you are much more aware of the graininess and its inability to deal with different exposures and all that." Um, so, you know, I don't think anyone should be saying we're really proud of our pass through right now. Everyone should be saying, "Hey, it's it's good enough right now to do the things you want to." Like the reason I can get by with the Apple Vision Pass Through is because I'm. Uh, mostly focused on my monitors, which look crystal clear, no pixels at all, and I'm not paying as much to my environment unless I'm walking to the kitchen to grab some tea. Oh, and uh, if you mesh your environment, that's kind of fun because if my environment gets really dark, especially if the pass-through isn't seeing it very well, I kind of have night vision now. Like With the mesh, it shows me a very spatial representation of my environment that I can navigate, even in the dark, and that's kind of like a cool little superpower. (laughs) So does it use like LiDAR and stuff or I mean, it still has to use the cameras, right? Yeah. Well, so to be clear, you would want to do this after you've already meshed your environment. So if I walk through you know, my house and I've meshed the whole thing and then everyone's sleeping except me and I'm turning off all the lights, it's still going to have that mesh and it's going to do a pretty good job of uh, keeping it fairly rock solid for where it thinks it should be. And so, you know, I haven't bumped into a wall yet. So it's, it's working pretty well. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, I had a coworker who used it on a
1: plane and he said that it was losing tracking a good amount when they turned the lights off. <laughs> so I wasn't sure if if it, it had uh, enough like infrared sensitivity for it to work in, in dark rooms.
0: Yeah, I get the warnings about the lights being off. And yet the performance is not that significant of a drop for me. I'm um, still recognizing my pinch gestures and, you know, where my eyes are looking and all that. Um, so I've been just very happy with how reliable it's been in different conditions. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention on the Unreal Engine side of all this was I've been interested in the fact that there's two epic apps that uh, I thought would be coming to the Apple Vision Pro. One is the VCam app, the virtual cam app, which you will usually use on like an iPhone to use augmented reality to kind of like move around and have that represent the virtual environment. I we talked a little bit about this during our Christmas Carol episode and cinematically capturing the live show using an iPhone that way. I understood that that probably wasn't going to work great in the Apple Vision Pro yet because there aren't really any AR kit features enabled. It will be really cool when that all works and you can walk around, uh, you know, looking in through this magic window into an unreal environment uh, just by kind of like pinching and moving a window around. So what's surprising is Epic Games left that as a compatible app, but it can't do anything right now. It doesn't even recognize Any of the gestures that would like have the virtual cam move around, you just get stuck on whatever the first frame is of your Unreal Engine project that you connected to. However, something that should work, but for some reason Epic Games opted out of allowing it onto the Apple Vision Pro store, is the LiveLink Face app. And the reason why I think this should work is because automatically, any app that requests the front-facing camera in the Apple Vision Pro is going to use the Persona. Um, and we've already seen that with Zoom and Google Meet and all these you know, video conferencing apps. And as um, a friend of the show, uh, Eugene Y.K. Chung from uh, Penrose Studios demonstrated, uh, he actually did a little test where he had a metahuman being driven by him using his iPhone pointed at his screen while he was screen sharing his persona. So this is like a very complicated way to do it. But if the Live Link base app were allowed to be native inside the Vision Pro, when you activate it, it should just have a perfectly stable you know front-facing view of your persona and be able to get all the blend shapes from that so I'm, I'm really surprised epic hasn't allowed people to do that yet yeah i i would be
1: very curious to see what the results of that would be because obviously the, the headset is just approximating everything itself yeah but yeah i mean that'd be pretty cool uh, to be able to use it for for that i mean the vcam stuff seems Pretty awesome, too, but that one makes more sense to me why why I wouldn't be working at the, at this point, Doc?
0: Yeah, a simple use case I saw a photographer pointing out, which I thought looked great, was he you know has his little DSLR camera with like a tiny little screen on it, but then he has an app that he would typically use on his phone to see a larger view of what he's um looking at through his camera. And so he was able to put that app um, on the Apple vision Pro. so he's walking around with his DSLR camera. And in the Apple Vision Pro, he has this giant, you know, 100-foot wide screen that's blowing that up to the highest resolution. So he sees all the little details of what he may or may not be capturing. And, like, that's such a cool
1: use case. That is pretty cool. You could, like, yeah, you could have a huge one to your side. I mean, <laughs> and there's also something to be said about not being present in the moment. But, uh, <laughs> yes, that that is pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it's a problem anytime there's other people you want to be interacting with or connecting with. EyeSight is still so far a pretty failed uh, experiment. But if you're like out taking pictures of butterflies, you know, this is such a great way to allow yourself to get like the perfect shot using as much data uh, as you could possibly want. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Cool. All right. Moving right along. Um, So, uh, Jacob, what can you tell me about WebGPU? WebGPU. Oh, yeah. So this is a a fun one. Uh,
1: I didn't even know this was on the docket. Yeah, I'll do my best. Um, yeah, so I, I guess going back, the, the start of all of this was uh, the introduction of um, WebGL, which was a way for your browser to essentially um, utilize your computer's GPU for graphics API Things, let's just say that. So, like, OpenGL is a standard that's been around a long time. It's not technically an API; it's a specific implementation, but it's it's a graphics API, and every GPU on the planet um, is able to essentially interface with this this uh, API. Now, OpenGL, or sorry, WebGL was a way of taking that and saying. Uh, you know, having the browser recognize those graphics APIs, local to your machine, be able to issue commands to it. So there are projects like uh, 3js and um, I want to say Babylon. Yes. Yeah, and a few others that did similar things. Um, and in the background, there's been a few projects building on new browser technology around things like um, WASM and the ability to run more performant and machine-level code in the browser that we're developing this thing called WebGPU, which instead of just presenting like graphics API, would allow your browser to essentially directly interface with your GPU and any graphics or any sort of interface it exposed as if it were... um, as if your browser was just like a a, a video game running locally, um, and so yeah, Web GPU has been actually been experimental in the browser for about two three years now. I want to say, um, like there were a few feature flags inside of uh, Chrome Labs that you could enable, and it would crash browser immediately. Uh, but it very recently received like more fully full feature support, and it's really cool. It, it just is. Um, and yeah, I saw this this post uh recently and I got pretty excited, though I did have some flashbacks uh to the the WebGL uh Unreal Engine um port that happened way back in the day that everyone uh uh, uh happily ignored. So it had HTML5, right? Well, yeah yeah. So like that was based off of a kind of similar technology where essentially they used WebAssembly. Um, this is kind of nerding out even further. <laughs> so I mentioned actually these acronyms, acronyms, WASM and WASI. So WASM is an acronym for WebAssembly, which is essentially if you're writing, um, a program in C or C plus like Unreal Engine, um, you can, instead of building a binary, you know, like, uh, uh mygame.exe, like you would usually, you can um, compile it for a specific target called WebAssembly, which is an intermediate language that the browser can essentially run. Mm. It's, like, it's like an executable for the browser kind. Um, WASI mm. um, is essentially like, you can think of it as an OS for the browser that's able to create a security perimeter around the devices that your computer owns and operates uh, as well as things like files and other things, and present them to the browser like it was, like it is a local machine again, right? And the beautiful thing about all of this is that because it runs inside of browsers, it means it runs on everything. Right. Um, and actually, WASM is uh, um, a compiled target that compiles directly into assembly, um, so there's no intermediate executable. Uh, and so literally anything on the planet can run these executables, which is extremely cool. Um, and so, yeah, because Unreal Engine was written in C++ and because C++ has very mature WebAssembly targets, uh, back in the day, Unreal Engine was ported to WebAssembly,
0: uh, and now mm-hmm. uh, it can be ported to WebGPU. Yeah. So for anyone who's uh, audio-only, this is uh, a tweet from Spatial Weeb. And he says, the mad lads did it. Unreal Engine 5 ported to Web GPU. So it's just a screenshot at the moment, but we see the inside of, um, what's that, Audi? Like, a yeah, some kind of car. And it's running in Unreal Engine, but entirely in the browser, nothing downloaded. Now, this is in pixel streaming. You know, we're not actually grabbing data from a cloud computer. We're running this off the local hardware, but it's all, you know, being downloaded and executed in a browser environment. Is that fair to say, Jacob? Uh, yeah. So the the biggest downside to and the reason this
1: didn't catch on back in the day is because Unreal Engine's big, like it's a huge file size. Yeah. Um. And so it's just not that convenient, um, to distribute this via the browser. Uh, you can do it. The smallest you could probably possibly get it is around two to three gigabytes um, for a reasonable experience, just because of how huge unreal engine is um as a compile target um so yeah that, that was the deal killer but it, if i remember clearly this was running um like at, on a local host web server mm. this probably wasn't uh, too glutton for punishment trying to download this over the internet um but yeah yeah that, that was the biggest deal killer uh for for web assembly i'll see if i can quickly find um the old
0: old video uh that uh, uh i'm not sure I... so. now of course while you're finding that my hope for this is uh same hope i've had with uh pixel streaming for a while is that we'll see some really good implementation of, of web gpu here alongside something like web xr and then we start to have more accessible ways to experience unreal engine uh inside you know virtual reality mixed reality spatial computing devices Yeah, no, I, I mean, I I think I
1: would love it if everything was WebAssembly. Okay, everything, literally everything. Well, it's so, yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, okay, so there is an official docs page um, in 4.26, which is the HTML5 SDK setup. Um, uh, 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 and I believe you can... Uh, it's... Yep, there it is. There's GitHub repo here, which I will attempt to link in our YouTube, uh-huh. um, which is the Unreal Engine HTML5 uh, documentation page, <laughs> and essentially it's doing exactly this. It's it's compiling into uh, WebAssembly, if I remember to. Uh, cool. But yeah, th- this is this has been around the block a, a bit, but WebGPU is a huge huge improvement, um, just because uh performance is able to reach and the not just graphics is able to do anything with gpu mm-hmm. um it's it's really quite cool uh so it's an exciting it's super exciting thing for for the browser mm-hmm. and hopefully yeah we're able to create more distributable software i think that's that's a huge benefit uh, yeah uh one other quick aside i'll give is that uh a very common thing you hear about uh, hear people talk about in mm-hmm. infrastructure is containerization. Mm-hmm. People probably if you've been around the block a little bit, you've probably heard of things like docker and and um, you know, similar technology. Um Docker was invented uh, so that you could take something like a program that runs in or that you built for Ubuntu and run it on any system. And the way it works is that you take, and it still has to be Linux, don't don't get too, uh, in both cases, the big asterisks there. Um, but essentially what you can do is you take the underlying kernel, which is the thing that accepts like all the assembly and all the requests from the computer. It's like your OS, the very base level of your OS. And Docker puts this abstraction layer on top of it um, that essentially, um, allows programs to run in their own little environment, but at the end of the day, they're really just talking to your um, And the inventor of Docker said if, if WebAssembly had been around when he invented Docker, he would not have invented Docker <laughs> for the reason that WebAssembly and uh, WASI, like essentially a, a super lightweight um, isolation framework and, and quote-unquote operating system, that can run WebAssembly targets means that, like, it does the same exact thing. It's, it's lighter weight, it's more portable, it runs in a browser, and browsers run on it, which, again, is, I think, such a huge uh, understatement. It, it's, it's the most reachable platform anywhere. Yeah. So, like, even your Wii could run, like, in theory, yeah. a software update could run some crazy stuff from the future that hasn't even been invented yet, which I think is is pretty cool. So, yeah, yeah WebAssembly web is pretty awesome. WebGPU is pretty awesome. Uh, I, I
0: highly recommend you
1: go and nerd out about it for a little bit. It's, it's a lot of fun. Cool.
0: Thanks for the detail, Jacob. One more thing I'll, I'll point out briefly before we move on is uh, my pal, Alex St. Louis. It's his company that is building this and uh, a little more detail about it. He says, excited to share a sneak peek of UE5 running in WebGPU with multi-threaded rendering performance optimizations and the star of the show and asset streaming system so jacob mentioned of course how in the past you typically don't like unreal engine running entirely in a browser because it's so heavy and it takes so long to download and i imagine this asset streaming system allows for a, a much lighter weight load and then you're only streaming in you know exactly the assets you need at any given time which might you know uh, amount to some pop-in and that sort of thing but it should be much more efficient and accessible than uh what used to be possible maybe yeah i it, if i were to are a betting
1: man and, <laughs> and were to say you know hey overnight this becomes like the biggest way of doing it, right I, I don't think it would yeah at least not today um you'll still maybe download shared like uh, um like you might still have to download the the core components for Unreal Engine on your local computer, mm-hmm. all of the uh, standard content and standard libraries that would ship. Um, but then, instead of having to distribute your individual experiences um, through executables like you do today, mm-hmm. you may be able to distribute, you know, some portion of that content directly through the browser and run it directly through your browser, um, so that you're able to. So, as a developer, at least, you only have to build your executable for a single target mm-hmm. which I think would be an awesome benefit for for developers. Right. I think everyone could pretty much agree that like it's it would be a whole lot better if you were able to build your game once and have that run everywhere um and not have to worry about different uh, user systems and how it interprets different graphics apis and everything uh, this kind of abstracts all of it, which. Uh, yeah huge win if if that were the case um and if we can figure out a compelling distribution kind of system for this great
0: all right uh moving right along uh, i thought i'd give a quick little example of um something people could use in their unreal engine deving this week uh we're going to start doing a little more of these like tips and tricks sort of thing so uh kit volta um, who works for Magic Leap and has been doing mostly Unity stuff, but is making their way into Unreal. I uh, had this question today, which because tagged me in, and it was, Yui oh, devs, what can I do to make metahuman hair show up in a headset build? It's fine in the editor. I changed the LOD LOD sync number and I forced it to one, but it's still bald, bald, bald in the build. So I thought this would be actually a good example of a, a tip, uh, <laughs> a place where I could give a couple tips because I've seen people make um, these choices before." So first of all, I want people to remember that when you do LODs, um, the higher the number is, the lower quality it is, and the lower the number is, the higher quality it is. So LOD zero, for example, for metahumans, you'd only want to use for cinematics, like that's you know 8K textures and rooms and all sorts of crazy stuff that you don't want to try to be rendering at real time. Going to LOD one is still going to be um, not uh, very performant. I think what Kit is saying here is they want to LOD 1 because there's a lot of grooms with metahumans that only ever show up at LOD 0 or LOD 1. Now, the problem with that is those grooms don't have hair cards. Those are grooms that can only work with the groom system, literally, and they are also very much not performant. You're going to be lucky if you can see those in VR on on a powerful desktop computer, and you're definitely not going to see Alembic grooms or anything like that running um inside a standalone headset. So ideally first of all you are using cards. you have you have cards as an option um, which you would get by basically using metahumans and grooms that don't have any of those caution symbols. Um, but then to actually make sure that those cards appear and not the grooms which in some cases can crash something like a VR experience there is a, a CVAR in Unreal Engine 5.0 5.1 5.2 it is <clears throat> r dot hair strands dot use cards instead of strands one so that's to activate that now it looks like that's been deprecated in 5.3 and the uh new version of that seems to be much simpler it is r dot hair strands dot cards one so that's just to activate cards and not use the grooms um kit also responded to this with you know i'm a noob in unreal i don't even know how to activate this anytime there's a c bar that you want to activate in Unreal Engine um, at the start of the game, you want it to be uh, using the execute console command node. And ideally you're putting that right off of begin play, you know, in your level blueprint or any other blueprint that is going to be inside uh, your map, just so that it happens right there at the beginning. Now, if you want to see it in editor, you can just hit the tilde key um, directly in editor and see it there, but it's only going to be active for that editor session. If you want it to always be active in the project, then you want to go into your default engine.ini file, either for that particular project uh, or some people go really wild and change it at the engine level, but I wouldn't generally recommend that. So there's my, my quick tip of the week. Um, oh, and actually one more thing to add to this because this was something we were recently asking on UDN and uh, got some good help for it that I want to pass on. We had a MetaHuman recording that every time we would play it back in editor, it looks fine. But then every time we would go to the movie render queue to export it, it started to freak out, like the neck bones and all sorts of stuff would just do these very horrifying Cronenbergian things. And what was finally determined was um, in the movie render queue, we were using the, I forget what it is, like the game mode setting, which you know turns off LODs, sets everything to LOD zero, uh, doesn't use texture streaming, uses everything at cinematic quality. And the problem was actually the fact that it was forcing everything in the metahuman to be at LOD zero. Because when this animation was recorded, the metahuman, we were trying to make it more performant. So we had the metahuman at LOD three or LOD four. And when you're at that lower LOD level where it's much more optimized, there's actually a different number of bones in the metahuman skeleton. And so what happens then is if you try to play back that animation all the way back on LOD zero, where there's a lot more bones, it starts to freak out and have a bit of an animation mismatch. So uh, the the lesson here is if you are going to be exporting something like an animation, you know, make sure you are recording your animation data at LOD zero or just in any case, you know, when you record animation data through the take recorder or live link or whatever, um, try to be doing it in a way that is going to work at the ultimate LOD level that you will have this working on at the end. And it seems like in general, it's easier to scale down like you can have. You can record to too many bones, and that's going to go pretty well when there are fewer bones, but you are going to have problems if you record it on fewer bones and then try to add more bones. Does that make sense, Jacob? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I, I thought LODs were dead. <laughs> I heard. Well, Nanite still doesn't work on skeletal meshes, Jacob. <laughs> uh, that's too bad. Not yet. <laughs> um, no,
1: I, th- that makes sense. Uh, honestly, I hadn't thought about... Um... The how how uh, a take recorder would work with um I I I don't I I animation is easily my weakest uh, to, uh, Unreal Engine Uh and so I hadn't thought about take recorder and recording with inside of a real time system like Unreal that that you would have to deal with LEDs that's that is very interesting
0: yeah so you know listeners if you if you like hearing some quick tips like that feel free to uh, send Jacob and I some direct questions, and uh, we'll see if we start to do a few more of these. Jacob, maybe you could do one next week.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, as long as it's uh, about WebGP. And
0: yeah, exactly. Stuff <laughs> over. I'm happy to answer questions. That'd be fun. Cool. All right. And uh, episode's running pretty long, but I want to just give a couple quick shout outs, and then we'll get out of here. One is for our friend uh, Alex from Out of the Box, uh, Out of the Box P, uh, for P for plugins on Twitter. And uh, he did a great thread today. He says, over the years, I've worked on a wide range of projects from small indie ideas to AAA games. Here is how I would build an interaction system from scratch in a real engine if I were to start a new project today. And I'll just give this a quick strol- scroll for our uh, YouTube watchers, but it's a 17-host um, thread with some you know, great, amusing graphics and kind of goes through uh, a-, a lot of smart ways to implement you know, interfaces and delegates and and casting and even C++ uh, across Unreal Engine. And I'd recommend anyone who even just wants to understand better some of the core mechanics of how Unreal Engine functions to take a look at this. You'll you'll learn a lot from this. And by the end of it, he has uh, a new component that is working inside of Unreal Engine. So great little lesson uh, in a series of 17 posts. Thanks, Alex, for all the cool plugins you make and uh, all the cool little tutorials you show like this.
1: Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Um, next, I want to, uh, this actually is, I, I should have, if I was a better host, I would have segued right from our web GPU discussion into this, because this is also about extensibility and you know some of the ways that things like uh, uh, OpenGL and all of that start to allow for a wider range of use cases. So Eric A. Anderson at EAA, um, had uh, some HLSL code. Or actually, I think this is GLSO. There we go. So Graphics Library, uh, Shader Library? Is that what GLSL would stand for? No clue. Oh, I think it's Graphics. So GL and OpenGL, I think, is Graphics Library. and Shader Language. Shader Language, yeah. Shader Language is the last two. Right. That's all I got. Yeah, I think the GL is the same GL as OpenGL. Um, gra- yeah, Open Graphics Library is OpenGL. So anyway, this was some code of this like really cool, like pulsing, it almost looks like the throat of death stranding uh, with the baby. And uh, he just gave the rock code here um, for how this was being implemented with GLSL. And then I love the fact that um, Eric here was able to take basically exactly the same code and then implement it in Unreal Engine and get a similar effect. So, you know, people forget that you can actually use HLSL and GLSL code directly inside of Unreal Engine and what a cool little use case of that
1: yeah yeah
0: I want to
1: toy continues to be one of the coolest websites yeah. on earth by the way if you've never checked it out yeah it's yeah it's insane and, and you, if you really want to get down and dirty with materials like that's that's the place to go uh...
0: cool all right well those are my quick shout outs and uh yeah well, there's a lot of neat stuff going on in unreal engine love to see people being creative um you know don't be don't be too afraid of ai everyone you still are beautiful people making awesome stuff and uh and at. <laughs> you can still have fun yeah
1: all right well i guess with that we'll we'll wrap up the, the episode if, if you listen to this point uh like rate comment subscribe all those things wherever you are whatever you're doing and uh Have a
0: great, uh, have a great week. Two weeks, maybe. (laughs) Let's see. Have a great month. Have a great February 29th. If we don't talk to you before that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, leap day. Make sure you have a good leap day. Only comes once every four years.
0: Yeah. And, uh, apologize, everyone for my voice and my throat. Uh, Jacob asked me at the beginning if I was sick and I was like, no, I just drank a cold smoothie and I felt my voice get like progressively worse over this episode. So, uh, Hopefully you've been able to understand me and I'll try to drink a nice hot tea for next time. Yeah, please do, out Make <laughs> me show. All right. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Have a great day and everything. Goodbye.